I'm Asat Zerkat. And I'm Zoe Rosenberg. And you're listening to The Appeal, the Curbed Podcast. On Saturday, September 24th, the National Museum of African American History and Culture opened to the public. And this museum is unlike anything else seen on the mall, which is where it's situated in Washington, D.C. It was designed by a team of firms under the collaborative name Freelon Ajay Bond Smith Group JJR. And today we have the distinct honor of talking to one of the lead designers, Phil Freelon, about the road to making the museum a reality. So stick around. So, Phil, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Yeah, we're super, super honored to have you. For listeners who don't know, can you describe how you came to work on the National Museum of African American History and Culture? It's such a momentous uh, occasion, and having this building finally be realized is something that a lot of people have been working on for quite some time. Yes, uh, well, this is a project that I've been interested in even before uh, it was really certain that it would happen. And so let's go back to 2002, 2003, uh, when George W. Bush had appointed a commission uh, to study the possibility of a museum. And so uh, I would go to D.C. once a quarter or so to um, participate and to observe those commission meetings uh, where they were discussing potential sites, and this is before the uh, the director was hired, et cetera. So uh, it, it's something, it's been a dream of mine uh, for, for a long time. Uh, leading up to 2007, when um, you know, we applied, myself and Max Bond, an architect in, in New York, who's now deceased, uh, we joined forces. We, we would see each other at these commission meetings, and we decided, well, why don't we combine together and form a, an alliance and uh, pursue this project? And that's when we decided to uh, to try and go for the pre-design and programming phase of work. That's even prior to any of the design work or the competition. There was a, uh, a portion of, of work that was advertised by the Smithsonian Institution to, to do all the preliminary legwork and uh, pre-design programming. And we were successful in in uh in gaining that commission to to uh, work with the Smithsonian to to figure out what could the museum be, so it goes back uh, almost ten years for me. Mm. Mm. So, for our listeners who aren't familiar with what the museum encompasses or what it stands for, or what its program is, would you mind explaining that to us? Yes, and I'll, I'll comment too that it's been ten years for me, but it's been a hundred years in, in the making because uh, the idea first came up. Most certainly. Um, Sometime after the Civil War, where uh, African American uh, veterans of that war, you know, came to Washington and made their request known, so it's been uh, off and on the agenda for quite some time. And the museum really does uh, stand for what what the uh, title says. It's a museum of African American history and culture. So there's there's a lot there uh, that speaks to the legacy of African Americans in this country and and uh, and also uh, looking forward, the contributions to culture and literature and music and um, politics and so on uh, up to today and beyond. So it really is uh, what the director says, and I agree with this, it's really a way to look at America through the lens of African-American history and culture. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways we do that is to... Uh, is to use the building as part of that expression. So uh, we, we've tried to design a structure 
and an experience that isn't simply housing uh, exhibits and galleries. It, it's also, in, in many ways, um, beginning to tell the story through through its iconic form and how that was uh, derived. So how do you even begin? I mean, you're encompassing uh, quite a bit of history um, and you're trying to touch on uh, popular culture and uh, athletic success and medical history and um, you know all of the various ways that African Americans have contributed to U.S. Uh, society. Um, how do you even begin to design for that? I think it's 40,000 some odd objects that are included in the museum. I mean, these are not just things that you're going to hang on the wall. I mean, there's so much that you have to really uh, make special allowances for in terms of their display. How did, how did that process go, just out of curiosity? Well, the, the uh, 40,000 uh, items in the collection are, are not all on display. It's, uh, and so there are some choices. There are curatorial decisions that have to be made and have been made to, to help uh, you know, tell the story and put it into a context and into a sequence that makes sense. And so you bracket things. And we're starting at the year 1400 or thereabouts when the global slave trade um, started more or less. And and then that, that story then moves on through uh, how the forced migration uh, spread throughout the uh, Western Hemisphere and, and, and so on up from there. And uh, and so that's a good place to begin, but it's not the end. You know, it's not all about uh, victims and perpetrators and struggle, although that aspect of our history is important to, to document. Um, and there's also uh, quite a bit uh, of information that's uplifting and, and stories of celebration and uh, rejuvenation, resilience. And uh, the museum is as much about those positive aspects as it is about remembering uh, the past and telling the truth. Mm. So, you know, back, back to your question, how do you begin? Well, there, there's, uh, there's a, a staff um, that includes uh, in the museum, um, you know, curators. There was a, a scholarly advisory panel that, that had um, academics and scholars from all over the country. So they, there was quite a bit of an advisory input uh, into how the stories are told, what items would be used to, to tell the story, and how, how it would be um, you know, structured and curated is an important part of it. I, I imagine for you, you know, this experience is not just uh, professional and, and uh, architectural, but also an emotional experience. What was it like to work on a project with such emotional heft? I would imagine that there's a lot of pressure there in addition to just getting your job done. I mean, obviously, this is something that a lot of people are personally and emotionally invested in. Well, it's a it's personal to me as an African American to to be able to contribute um, to this huge endeavor uh, and to add value in that way through, through the architectural work mm-hmm. uh, and coordinating with the exhibit designers. And yes, we we felt the the weight of that every day, but at the same time, uh, we were well prepared. This is a building type and a a, um, a theme that we're well familiar with having designed a number of museums uh, around the country. Absolutely. Um, although this is uh, by far the largest and the most in-depth uh, of, of those that we've worked on, um, it came at a time in our career and in our firm where we felt uh, well prepared to, to uh, take on the challenge. 
what particularly did you want it to express uh, at its onset when somebody who has never seen it before sees the building? Was there something particular that you wanted it to say to the people that would be visiting it and who would be embracing it? That's a great question. Uh, and from the beginning, uh, we felt that the museum should be distinctive. Um, the mall is filled with buildings that are marble and concrete and granite, shades of light gray, and sort of nondescript in, in terms of their tonality. And we felt we thought it would be appropriate for this building to uh, set itself apart by way of how it appears and, and the coloring and the materiality of it and the form. And that's a delicate balance because we, we also wanted to respect the very important location, mm. um, the last buildable site on the mall and literally within the shadow of the Washington Monument. And the task then became, you know, how do you, how do you create something that's, uh, you know, dignified, um, and exuberant, but also respectful uh, of its context. And so that, that has been, uh, the challenge and we feel like we've achieved that. Um, with a building that is simple in, in its form. It's, it's square uh, in its footprint. And then uh, the, the, uh, the corona, we call it, the, the exterior skin, um, is angled at, at a uh, dimension of 17.5 degrees, um, which mirrors the angle of the top of the Washington Monument. So oh, there, that's there so fascinating. Back. Yeah, and you can actually stand on site and, and see that alignment. Uh, of, of those two important uh, neighboring structures. And the pattern um, in the corona, the way it, 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 uh, it creates sort of a gossamer, um, translucent uh, pattern of openings, that, that is a reference back to some of the ornate ironwork that we see in places like New Orleans and Charleston, mm. where African-American artisans, um, you know, played a vital role in, in that aesthetic. And so uh, our pattern is a modern interpretation of that. So in this way, we, we've been able to infuse um, African-American and African influences into the building, create a, a distinctive uh, form. And in the use of the uh, material, the bronze-type uh, metallic coating that we have, that, that is referential to, um, you know, that ancient material that stands for longevity, um, durability, and, and quality. Mm -hmm. so these are all uh, part of the uh, driving forces of the design that led us to what you see out there today. Being able to synthesize so many different aspects of African design and, and art um, and referencing you know, what black craftsmen in the American South did in, in places like you noted in New Orleans, um, I think is a really great kind of clear, legible way for folks who don't know anything about architecture and design to immediately be able to connect with this thing that looks so different. Um, and obviously the mall is, is a place that holds special significance for African-Americans. And it's just, you know, it's quite amazing that the building does have the presence that it does. And I think it's a credit to the work that you all did. So thank you for that. Well, the team was, was incredible. And we had, uh, you know, input from quite a, quite an interesting um, group of people, including David Ajay, who's mm -hmm. a Tanzanian-born British architect. Um, Max Bond, uh, who, as I mentioned before, he, he passed away as we were finishing the design competition, but he certainly mm -hmm. had a, a strong hand in, in what you see there. 
and he was widely considered the dean of African-American architects mm-hmm. in, in our firm who, who brought the history of, of um, you know, working with uh, cultural groups to help bring expression to, to their uh, institutions. So it really was a, a great team effort. So we're going to be talking about something that I think is pretty important, how to behave in a museum. I feel like that's something that we could all use a reminder about from time to time. So we have Jeremiah back in the studio with us. Hey. And a new voice, uh, our engagement editor at Curbed, Mercedes Kraus. One of us is very, very good at behaving in museums and we'll let you, the listener, figure out which (laughs) which one that is. (laughs) It's not me, it's Mercedes. I'm a card-carrying member of at least two New York City cultural institutions, so I have credentials. We're talking about museums today and in this episode, and we figured what better time to remind everyone, really, ourselves included, (laughs) honestly, how to, just how to comport yourself in a museum, (laughs) but also just like give some tips and tricks. I feel Mm -hmm. like museums can be intimidating places, not just because there's like fancy shit around and you don't want to end up like that woman who like painted over the portrait of Jesus. Yeah, number one rule, don't, don't paint over the paintings in the museum. Yeah, exactly. Even if you think you can do a better job than her. All right, so drop some knowledge. We're ready. One of the most important things is these are cultural institutions. If it's a pay what you wish, like the Metropolitan Museum of New York is, totally get if you, you know, are not comfortable giving the entire um Ticket suggested, suggested donation. Suggested donation. It's exactly. like twenty-five dollars. It's which is it's pretty steep for a lot of people. I have, I have a question about that. Whenever I go to a museum, it has the sign and it has twenty dollars in size six hundred and ninety font, uh-huh. and then suggested <laughs> donation pays you wish in size like 0. 0.5. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I right to feel uh, like like angry at them that they're trying to trick me? They're trying when they're trying to influence you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But what a diplomatic and generous answer. <laughs> I don't think it's untrue, but definitely diplomatic and generous. Well, I mean, for me personally, you know, I see that and I'm like, well, but the suggested donation says I can pay whatever I'd like or that it's that it's suggested. So I have I definitely have paid full price at the Met and I definitely have not. I mean, there are times when if I go to go back to see a show that I paid for the first time, you know, like I'm going to pay less. What is the, the requisite amount of time to stand in front of a piece of artwork to make, to make it look like you're getting something out of, I'm not, I'm not asking for me just Jeremiah, in case there's any real, uh, real dumb dumbs out there listening. <laughs> yeah. Asking for a friend. Asking for my worst, my very worst friend. Uh, 15 seconds. Okay. You really don't need that much time. And my my sort of second tip is you're not going to like everything. You're not going to vibe with everything. So like if you give it five seconds and you're like, oh, I'm not really seeing anything, it's totally fine to move on. If you see something and you're like, oh, this piques my interest. Well, then stand there as long as you damn well please. You know, like don't feel influenced by the crowds. If If something is speaking to you, stand there. If it's not, it's totally cool to just move on. You're going to get a feel for the whole show and the whole place. And like you're absorbing a lot of stuff as you go. You don't have to like contemplate every piece of art. Sounds a bit like speed dating, you know? Absolutely. Just That's a great parallel. Do you connect? Do you not connect? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, those are the only two on, options. Come back. <laughs> yeah. Don't touch the person that you're speed dating. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> that would be weird. Yeah. Yeah, and and main thing there is like don't take your giant ass iPad and like stick it in somebody's face oh in between goodness. somebody who's trying to look at a piece. Thank you, you know, for just saying like that. wait a second. Just wait a goddamn second. <laughs> so basically to to recap what we have, it's 
pay what you wish, but, you know, pay something probably yes. if you can afford it. Yes. Look at what you like. You don't have to look at everything. And also just be a person and be considerate of other people. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming in and, and culturing us all. You're quite welcome. <laughs> and if you have any tips of your own, please do tweet at us at The Curbed Appeal. We would love to hear them. So let's go inside the building. We've been talking a lot about what it looks like when you're on the mall and from the outside, but I'm very curious to hear um, about you know any specific exhibitions that or you know pieces and objects in the museum that excited you personally, um, and what the experience of kind of being inside the building is like. Yes, and there are many moments, uh, and, and it really is difficult to say this this particular place or this location or artifact. Mm, I bet is um is better or more poignant i mean it's a personal decision so you may go in and and find that the um the gallery that focuses on uh military involvement of, of african americans in the military is particularly moving because perhaps someone in your family um was involved in that aspect of our history mm-hmm. or um you know as if you're in my age group and and lived uh through and on into today and experience the uh, civil rights movement, then there are aspects of that story that really resonate. Um, and then there's the, the sheer joy of, of the music exhibit. Um, and that's something that everyone can relate to. Uh, and, and that's a point I want to make also that this, this, mu- this museum is, a, is about America and about African Americans, but it's a story that is universal. And it's one for everybody. And people from all over the world would be interested and and all Americans can come and enjoy this quintessential American story. So there's something pretty much for everyone. I mean, that sounds trite and cliche, but there there is quite a bit of variety um, when you think about the history and the artifacts ranging from Harriet Tubman's uh, Bible Mm -hmm. to, um, to Chuck Berry's, you know, candy apple red Cadillac. And, um, It's just, uh, and, and, um, you know, the, the mothership from Parliament Funkadelic. Mm-hmm. I love that. As well. <laughs> so there, there's some, uh, there's something literally for everyone. So we know that the facade of the building, we know the considerations now that went behind that. Um, and as you started to mention earlier, there are things in the museum that are celebratory and there are things that are more somber. How do you go about yes. thinking about those spaces um, are they are they prepared by you as an architect are they are they different or are they one in the same oh they're quite different for instance the history gallery which is the largest uh, gallery space in the building uh, you know is located in in a in a big volume that goes down 65 feet into the ground and that story you know begins uh, in a small smaller confined area that that is maybe uh, that is lit um dimly and you know just to set the tone uh, and then as you as you move through that aspect of the history it opens up into this uh, broader expanse where you begin to see other other artifacts of history as you ascend literally you're going up ramps and, and moving uh upward in the story and you know also um it's it is an ascension so you're feeling 
how history is is elevating you uh, mm-hmm. coming through. And because space um, has a big volume to it, you, you can look across to where you have been and kind of put history into context. So if you're if you're at the Pullman uh, rail car with the segregated uh, cabins there. Um, and you look across and you might see the Tuskegee Airmen uh, aircraft on the other side of this large volume. Uh, and, it, and it helps to give um, kind of a different point of view of, of history because mm. it's not simply a linear. It, it sort of has cross connections across the space. So we right. thought about that uh, and how we, we would like for um, visitors to, to begin um, their journey with the history exhibit. Um, and so you, you descend uh, down an elevator or escalators to the beginning of that exhibit and work your way up to the present day or to, uh, up to 1968, um, which is sort of a, uh, a pivot point in our history. And then the other galleries are above ground. So, yeah, a lot of thought is, is given to um, how these different galleries are positioned in the building, their shape, their configuration, the, the um use of technology, the use of artifacts, mm-hmm. and uh, this is something that we worked very carefully on with uh, Ralph Applebaum Associates, who were the exhibit designers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we did not want um, you know, people to just come and walk across the threshold and they're in another place, but we wanted this to be integrated, the architecture, the exterior, the landscape, the interior, and the exhibits to be a flowing um, experience, seamless one to the next. Right, and when you mentioned the Pullman car and having the Tuskegee Airmen's uh, plane in the same in the same hall, it sounds like there's quite a bit of uh, conversation, if you will, between objects in the museum and then the exhibit, the you know exhibition spaces and the building itself. Um, I'm I'm quite excited to go down there and see it. Yes, and then there's there are also um, a lot of quotes, and, and as you go through and read, they're, they're everywhere. There are thousands of them uh, throughout the building from. Everyday people on on through to names we we all remember uh, and, and and hold in high esteem. Uh, so uh, as as these quotes are different sizes, they're in different places. They're on walls. They're on um, you know other aspects of, of of the interior architecture, and it, it's another way that we can listen and, and have history speak back to us. It really is quite powerful. I think we've we've pretty well canvassed the museum, but we're curious, what are two other projects that you are working on that you are excited about right now? Yes, that's that's a great question as well. And, um, you know, one in particular that, that is really exciting to me and our, our firm is the uh, Motown Museum in Detroit. Oh, great. And oh. Uh, yeah. this, is, uh, this is happening right on the site where uh, Barry Gordy first started Hitsville. It's a renovation of his house back in the 50s. Uh, and so that's going to be our full-scale artifact, um, restoring that and some of the recording areas in the basement where uh, many of the tunes we were all familiar with happened right there. Hmm. And then we're adding 40,000 square feet um, behind uh, the, the legacy buildings, Hitsville being one of them, and there, and there are three others. And so it becomes this constellation of uh, legacy structures and new construction uh, woven in together uh, to make the visitor experience, including uh, 20,000 square feet of, of new um, exhibition space. There's a theater. What are some kind of the things that will be uh, on display, if you have an idea yet? 
Yeah, there, there's quite a bit, and um, there, there's a lot that we've been waiting to bring out of, of stories to, to get back in into uh, view for the public. So there's a lot of excitement about that, including some of the uh, you know the garments that were, were worn by the groups. You know, back in the '60s, uh, it was a really special time for for uh, those those groups who, who dressed a certain way, and, and uh, Motown stood for you know a um, a certain sophisticated approach to to the music, and uh, and so all of that will be brought brought back to light. There'll be um, parts of the uh, the experience where you can go in and actually record uh, your voice in the same space where Smokey Robinson or Marvin Gaye, you know, once uh, you know sang. And so <laughs> I'd love to do that. We want to make it as inter- interactive as possible. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, one step closer to being Diana Ross. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think that was one. Do you have another one that you're interested in? Uh, I do. I do. There is a museum in Miami uh, that we're working on that is focusing on the art of the African diaspora, Mm. Uh, not simply um, African-American, but the diaspora is much broader than that. And so there's a lot in the Caribbean and uh, certainly the motherland, and uh, and there are many... um, Collectors who who, uh, who are looking to have a place to to exhibit and uh, rotating shows, traveling exhibits, and to learn about how uh, the the art of the diaspora has influenced um, you know art in general, but also has created this genre that's very powerful in and of itself. What's the timeline for both of those projects? If you can, if you have a sense already, and you can say. Yes, uh, we're looking at early 2019 for the Motown Museum, and we're in the very early stages, uh, not quite as far along on the uh, Museum of the African Diaspora and Art. So um, that will be sometime, depending on fundraising, uh, you know, five or six years out. Okay, so plenty of time for folks to get their train, plane, and bus tickets <laughs> yeah, and get themselves out there Absolutely. to those places. Absolutely. That's great. Was there anything else about either the National Museum of African American History and Culture or, um, you know, your other two projects that you wanted to note? Well, I wanted to say one other thing about the museum in Washington, and this is another reference back to African American culture. You'll notice coming uh, from the mall side of the building, there is a a structure that we call the porch, and it's a, a free span, about 240 feet. It's this welcoming gesture, and, and we know from our culture that uh, the porch is a place to see and be seen. It, it's this transition from the exterior to the interior. And particularly in the South, it's a, it's a place of respite from the heat. And all these things come into play uh, there in Washington as the summers get very hot. We have a water feature there as well. Mm-hmm. Part of it is moving water. Part of it is still. So this incredible porch is creating its own microclimate of cool cool air and, and uh, with the water moving that is really in, inviting people in, everyone into the building. And so we're, we're excited about that aspect of the design as well. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, I think, uh, I think that, that about wraps it up for us. Well, thank you. This has been great. Thank uh, you. I appreciate the privilege of uh, talking with you. And um, you know, we look forward to uh, a, a great opening in a few days. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you again. That was the third episode of this season of The Curved Appeal. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and find us in the podcast section of the Spotify app. 
And if you're so inclined, uh, give us a couple or more than yes, a couple stars. Yeah, just give us five stars on iTunes if you're going to rate us. I mean, yeah, why wouldn't you? <laughs> so if you want to learn more about the museum, you can go to their website, which is nmaahc.si.edu. And if you want to hear about uh, the design process and what you can expect upon visiting the museum, please do check out the piece that our architecture critic, Alexandra Lang, wrote for us. You can find it at curb.com. Mm-hmm.